Good morning. God's blessings to all of you. Lord God, dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of holy baptism, which you have given to Jack Owen this morning. Thank you for forgiving him his sins, separating him from the multitude of unbelievers, and giving him faith to serve you as your obedient child. You have blessed us with your precious word and sacrament this morning. May your gospel increase our faith in you and extend our love for each other. Be with us in the study of your sacred scriptures this morning. Give to us faith and obedience like your servant Abraham, who trusted in your goodness amid great testing and trial and put his hope in the resurrection of your son. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Today we're having a look at uh, Genesis chapter 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. You're probably thinking, what a genius Larson is. What a genius. He, he planned this so perfectly with the fifth Sunday in Lent and the sermon today. and Just a coincidence. And just... <clears throat> just Pure divine intervention. So, um, but it, I am really uh, thrilled, kind of how it, how it's worked out here, because we've been walking with Abraham here for uh, for months, starting in um, chapter twelve and the original call of Abraham and all those promises. And today's, I think, is a nice way to celebrate in so many ways. I really think that this is the climax of Abraham's prophetic ministry. I also think that everything that you've been witnessing in the call of Isaac, excuse me, the call of Abraham, the promises given to Abraham, uh, his life and his ministry, that it's all been building up to this point. From the call out of Ur to the promise that uh, through him he would bear a son and that the son would be a blessing to all nations, that he would, uh, many nations would come from him. I don't think that God just kind of plopped this whole sacrifice of Isaac thing on him. Like they're camping and they're having a great time and then there's this, I really am convinced that from the get-go, God has been preparing Abraham for this moment and for this mountain and for this sacrifice. So, you know, did Abraham understand the whole picture? It's hard to know exactly, you know, everything they understood here. But generally, I... Um, really believe that Abraham had been hearing the preaching of the gospel through his life here and um, and this is the this is the climax here so if you're just hopping in today kind of for the first time we've been looking at uh, the book of Genesis and we're hoping not just to do a quick flyby but we're actually um, hoping to have a look at kind of a chapter by chapter in-depth look of the whole narrative here and maybe spend some time in 
some chapters in Genesis that normally you don't. So next time I see you, I'm going to be giving a, a little Bible study on, um, on Sarah's burial, you know, chapter, uh, chapter 23. So um, let's have a reader. Let's have a reader. Um, maybe we'll get through the chapter, most likely not. Uh, hopefully through verses 1 through 14. Actually, you know what? I'm up. I'm going to take it, actually. Sorry, everyone. I'm going to do the reading. I'm just going to read 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Um, there's a lot of, you know, somewhat more obscure chapters in uh, the book of Genesis. This, this one is not. This is one of the central texts of Holy Scripture that are so inspirational as we think about the, uh, the Holy Church and the gospel itself, what I'd like to do is just kind of a verse-by-first devotional reading of it. After these things, God tested Abraham, said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. God uh, tests Abraham. The, the word here is actually is elsewhere occasionally translated as uh, to tempt. But we also know from Scripture that God does not tempt his saints. So the, the, the translation here is 
is right. This is a test. Um, we know from the Catechism, Book of James as well, that God does not test, does not tempt his children. Does he test them? Yes. So another word for this is tentatio. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. It comes from a Latin word meaning to kind of stretch something, to put, to put something under the test to see what it's, to see what it's made of. We have wonderful promises on how God um, brings us into a right relationship with him through tests and through trials. I often, you know, when I'm visiting with Christians and occasionally, you know, preaching, I like to remind the folks that it's highly unlikely that you would be in this room in a Bible study at church if God did not occasionally lay some heavy trial upon you, right? Some heavy test that in the midst of suffering, uh, God draws us to himself to know the consolation of his love. And here, as we'll see, God will give a, um, God will give a, uh, a test of test to, to Abraham. Dr. Lane. Yeah, there seems like a, a pretty difficult distinction between those two terms. Yeah. Uh, the Lord's Prayer says, lead us not to temptation. We say that God tempts no one to mm. pray in this petition. Luther says, James is full of it. Oh, you're right. <laughs> And yeah, then, yeah. Exactly at this point right, in Genesis right. 22, he says, James has no idea what he's talking about. Of course he's, t- he's tempting Abraham, which is very odd of Luther, I think, and it's not very consistent in that regard. So I wonder if there's a way that we could talk about um, tempting and testing. So in what way are we rejecting the idea of a, a tempting in what, in what sense are we saying this is a, a testing? And I think the testing you made very clear and very helpfully. Yeah. But, but what's so dangerous about us suggesting that this is tempting? And Luther wants to say, sure, it is the temptation. Yeah, I'd have to, re- yeah, I'd have to review. And he, yeah, Luther kind of, uh, that commentary kind of makes this thing about how God is kind of making a sport of death, kind of making a sport of this whole thing. And that... Um, you know, Abraham learns that even, even death is no, is no barrier to the promises of God. Um, so is the distinction just like temptation is a seeking to get someone to do something evil, whereas a testing is to find what is good? And yeah, I, like I said, I kind of like tentatio. I, kinda, I like that word tentatio. When you, you're putting something under a test to see what it's, to see what it's made of, and then, and that. You know, unlike it, yeah, I mean, unlike a temptation, a test is where you're drawn into a, you're drawn into a, a relationship in a way that you would not otherwise be drawn into. Um, but yeah, when, when I, you know, when, I, when I'm teaching, of course, when we're talking about tempter, the tempter, we're talking about the, the evil one. So um, I'd have to review exactly how Luther's using that and exactly, you know, how he's laying that out. Yeah. Um, I think his point is that God appears as a devil. Oh, okay. I mean, that is yeah. actually where he goes with it. He's because because he's command or he's commanding him to break even God's own word. Right. Right. And so in this way, he appears as the devil. And so that's why that's the subtlety of Luther. He's saying this is a temptation because God appears to do the very thing that God would never do. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's nice. Thanks for saying that. So. 
Yeah, with this test, you see that God's, um, God's promises and what he's commanding here are in direct opposition, right? So this is a real um, crisis of faith. You could say that, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, yeah, there's a, temp- a temptation to see a contradiction there where a, a Christian plows through and says that, yeah, even if this son is reduced to ashes, that I believe that God is going to raise this this child from the dead. Um, uh, Dr. Vietz, yeah? Does it matter um, that, that God knows the outcome of this test? Does his foreknowledge play a role in whether, whether or not it's a, a temptation or a test? Yeah, of course, God knows what he's going to do. And I also think that Abraham, I think Abraham also trusts that God is going to deliver on those, on those promises. But I'm, I'm going to stick closely with, with tasks. I like the translation. Um, and uh, I'm not as dismissive of James as Luther. Yeah, I mean, it's the Bible. I'm a fundamentalist. It's the Bible for me. I'm a, big, I'm a fundy. Yeah, let, let no one say God is testing us. I mean, we do have, do have that. Who else want to chime in? Dr. Patterson. Yeah, I'm just thinking of the comparison here with God's dealing with Job. Uh, and I just turned there, at least in the ESV, uh, at least the little heading that says test. Uh, but there's God saying to Satan, Yeah. Here's Job. Mm-hmm. Your words. Right, right. Uh, but I was also looking at James there. He says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Mm-hmm. And that certainly sounds like the way that. Right. I'd like to. Um, another thing I want to talk about in this verse here is how is God describing this son that he has? Michelle? Well, your only son, which is a little weird because he technically has another son. Right, Ishmael? Right, right. Yeah, there's another son. There's Ishmael. I'm sure, you know, God and Abraham would not deny that uh, this is a son. But this is, this is, this is the son of promise. Uh, Ishmael is the, it's a work of the flesh, right? He, he thought uh, that God needed help to deliver on these promises. Let's get this, uh, let's go with uh, Hagar, this, this slave woman, and we'll help God deliver on this promise of a son. So, yeah, it's not that this is Abraham's, it, this is Abraham's only son in this way, that this is the son of promise where Ishmael is a, um, represents the works of the flesh. What else does he say about this son? What else do we learn from scripture here? Isabel. Um, that Abraham loves his son. Yeah, so, you know, I was preparing for this, I had another look and got me thinking about, you know, how many times we've had this language of love in Genesis thus far. <clears throat> and of course, love has always been co- part of the conversation. God creates all things uh, out of love. We talked about love in some depths when we're talking about uh, the creation, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Um, love is a theme throughout. However, this is the first time in the book of Genesis where this word is actually first used. 
we talked about that a couple weeks weeks ago with a, with Abimelech. That that was the first time we kind of have a specific reference to, I think, uh, prophet, uh, prophecy, prophets, and and prayer. This is the first time that we have a, really a direct reference to love. That's significant. So, the first mention of love is tied up with what? Relationally here. Isabel. Father and sacrificial son. Yeah, that's right. Love of the father for a son. You know, fast forward to the New Testament. What's the, what's the first uh, time love is mentioned in the New Testament? Want to take a guess on that one? Yeah, that's right. Baptism, right? Heavens are open. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Same thing with Mark. Same thing with Luke. John's gospel is a little different. But what do you think the first time is in John? Where do you have the word love? Yeah, God so loved the world that he gave his own begotten son. So, you know, there's something that you know, I've been thinking about a little bit with these um, sermons on 1 John chapter 4 we've been doing for midweek Lent services where we're preaching on love and that you can't really say anything about love apart first from the love that the Father has for the Son. So, you know, anytime you kind of seen kind of the first time a word is used, you really want to stop and think what sort of pattern is being developed here around this word and what does that mean for us so we really cannot say anything about love apart from the love that the father has for the son and you see this through the preaching of our lord um you know the father um especially in john's gospel and he's going to take him to the land of moriah mount moriah and I, I do like to make a, a deal of this. We know from Second Chronicles chapter um, 3 that this is the place of the future Solomon's temple. Right? This is the place where the future sacrifices will be. This, um, in fact, some archaeologists are really convinced who have studied this a little more because they, they made all these excavations and, and they dug on this mountain for the for the temple, and uh, a lot of those excavations look like the uh, form what we now know what we what we know is the place of the skull. So there's folks that are really convinced that the same place of Isaac's sacrifice is the exact same place that our Lord uh, Christ was crucified. So that's worth thinking about. This is where the temple is. This is where the sacrifices is. This is where Jesus enters the temple, uh, cleanses the temple of the sacrifices all to make room for for himself. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So how does uh, Father Abraham respond? How do you characterize Abraham's response to this commandment from the Lord. Peter? Um, well, it, it seems that he doesn't question it, and also I have a question about the fact that he uses the word rose and a rose. 
Yeah, we, ha we had that Abimelech a couple weeks ago. It kind of denotes purpose, uh, obedience. Um, yeah, and obedience to the Lord. We have nothing in the text that leads us to believe that, um, that, that obedience is not immediate and absolute. Abraham is going to do what God has commanded him. Come on in, catechism students. Welcome. Have a seat. At the same time, you know, if you read Luther, he never wants you to think of the patriarchs and prophets and saints as kind of these wooden saints. So, you know, you think, uh, how do you think Abraham was sleeping those couple days, right? How do you think he was, how do you think he was doing? Think he was getting a full eight hours? No way. No way. This is a crushing, crushing trial of faith. Saddles up his donkey, takes two men um, with him. Uh, who's doing the... Who's doing the work for this act? Oh. Okay, yeah, go ahead, Kirk. So when we talk about how he was afraid, how come there's no like specific clarification on his fear? How we have that where in other places in scripture where we talk about, you know, when an angel of the Lord appears and they're so afraid and they say, Don't be afraid. Yeah. How come there's no emphasis on like you know he's afraid, but he still did. Right. I think the text is just to emphasize his absolute trust and yeah. obedience in God. So and yeah, that's right. So I'm not. Um, and I think just because we know that Abraham is a flesh and blood man, I think that we're just to, to read this in. So, okay. I mean, are there tears? Yeah. Are those eyes bloodshed as you, you know, walk into the. Yeah, I think that's all there. But you, and then look, you have, uh, you have the father who's very active in, the, active in the work of the sacrifice here. You know, you have this great and mighty patriarch, but who's doing the, you know, who's doing the verbs here? Who's, who's preparing the sacrifice? It's a, yeah, well, it's Abraham. It's Abraham. Abraham's cutting the, cutting the wood. Saddle up a donkey. The children are just upstairs. What were you guys preparing for? Palm yeah, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. So, you know, preachers love this. Anytime we're talking about donkeys, what are we, what are we talking about here? Beast of burden. That's what donkeys do. They carry heavy things. Makes us think about Palm Sunday, the presence of our Lord. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So already you know from the text. You've got to know from the text that this is a resurrection story. And how do you know that? How do you know that? Catechism students. How do you know that this is a worship, this is a, uh, this is a resurrection story? Abraham is with Isaac. They're saddling up. They're going to the mountain. They're departing from the man and the donkey. They're going up to do the sacrifice. John Galvin. Um, they say uh, they will come again. Yeah, we will come back again to you. But I had a, I had a yeah. question too. Uh, 
Um, I'm interested in these young men that he took with him. Would they be, and it doesn't say, I mean, it could be speculation, but would they be relatives and why they're not invited to come and worship? Yeah, thanks. So uh, John is asking about, you know, what's with these two men, <clears throat> these two servants? Um, there seems to be something going on here. There's some primacy. He's, he's talking with them. He's bringing them along, but yet they're not going up to the mountain. They're staying here. And didn't help cut the yeah, they didn't help cut the wood either. And um, I had a, a really nice conversation with Dr. Uh, Dr. German on this, and he got me thinking about this in a different sort of way. And maybe you could add to, add to this, but you know, you have lines like, "Where two or three are gathered in my name." There I am among them. So, you know, Dr. German really sees some ecclesiology here. And that the, the two men, you know, you also have this idea of witnesses, two or three witnesses, something there. And the two men are, are to stay back with what? The with the donkey. Stay, so I got, I'm just getting this from Dr. German here. Yeah, <laughs> St stay back with, uh, stay here with the burdens, right? Stay here with the burdens. Uh, donkey is also something of an icon of Christ in a way carrying our sins. And we're going up this mountain. And what are, yeah, what are their only instructions? They're not really told to do anything. They're told to, yeah, kind of stay put, to keep vigil, be still and wait for the, the Lord. We're coming back to you. So, it's eschatological, you know, we're also waiting for the, for the sacrifice and this redemption to come. Stay by the donkey, wait, we're coming back to you. Anything you want to add? Yeah, so I, I was always a little troubled by that and didn't totally know what to make of that, and I really like the way Dr. German's thinking through that. It's just a comment um, of him getting up early in the morning and this idea that the story of Abraham is one of faith. And certainly Genesis 22 is that of faith. But James says, uh, you see that Abraham is justified by his works when he offers, offers up Isaac. So what's strange about it is that James sees that the sacrifice did take place. Yeah. Like it, so that's not even a question. He, he did sacrifice his son. Right. Um, and then also there is this, there's this activity of faith where you can't exactly distinguish faith and works from each other. It's not as if those are two two things that you just say they have nothing to do with each other. It's embodied in the person of Abraham in such a way that um, you can move all the way to the end of the story and say he knows the end, but also all the way along because he somehow knows the end by faith and hope. He's doing things. He yeah. gets up early. He, he prepares things. Um, and then James says this bizarre thing. He says, this is to fulfill what the scriptures said that he was justified by faith. Yeah. So the whole story is this culmination of the life of faith of Abraham. And um, just that observation here, this, this idea of worshiping. Uh, it's not as if Abraham believes and he starts a soup kitchen. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever. It's not these social works. It's that it's, it's actually embodied in, within worship. Um, trusting God's word and doing what God's word says to do. Mm -hmm. um, it's just very rich here that it's not only, uh, yeah, 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 Abraham knows the end of the story. Yeah. It's that every moment of this story, Abraham is trusting and believing and therefore doing. Yeah, 
Yeah, and the works are tied up inextricably with the, with the faith confessed yeah. here. Yeah. We will come back to you. We trust that, um, you know, we talked about how, you know, this is one of those moments where you have, you have God's promise that, you know, the, Abraham knows that the, the world's whole salvation is wrapped up in this child, Right? So now he's told to do something that is completely, through the eyes, you know, what his senses, that is completely contradictory to those promises. But he trusts that death is is no barrier. And that even if if his son is reduced to ashes, God is going to make good on all these promises, raise the dead, and do everything that he's, everything that he's promised. Um... You have another little kind of textual cue on resurrection here. You see anything else? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Jonathan held up three, three fingers. So, and this is a little thing in the scriptures. And you might think, oh, you're reading a little too much into that. But you know, third, third day. Um, let's see, I wanted to show something else. Yeah, you have this... Yeah, on the third day. So, I had another scripture I want to show you. Well, how about that gospel today when Abraham rejoiced to see our Lord's day? Yeah. You know, he could say, Abe rejoiced to see my glory, or Abe rejoiced to see this, that, and the other. But he did say, he saw my day. Right. And of all the narratives of Abraham, there are a lot of them, but this makes a deal out of a day. Yeah, so it's a great connection with the, with the gospel that you heard today. Yeah, before Abraham... Uh, I am, and Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So it makes you wonder, you know, what exactly did Abraham see on that day? And I'm convinced, you know, Abraham has seen, I think it's in reference to the ram, which you'll get at. But I also am really convinced that Abraham saw 2,000 years prior that he saw a crystal clear picture of Good Friday and our Lord on the cross. So... With, this, with uh, the third day, I also want you to think about, um, you know, Paul says that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the uh, scriptures. And for me, that's important because when Paul is writing, it's not like you have the whole New Testament floating around. So Jesus is raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about? Yeah, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. So... You have, um, you have God coming to dwell with his people on Mount Sinai on the third day, given of the law. You know, wash your, wash your clothes, get ready. You have Jonah in the belly of the whale, three days, three nights, resurrected on the third. And you also have this from our Lord himself on Emmaus, you know, um, that, that the Christ will be raised on the third day. Um, so these are patterns that were preached and taught in the church where they recognized the third day was the day of the, of the resurrection. Dr. Lane? Yeah, this is just so wonderful. The, the, the reference to the three days and then also just back to the two men. Uh, an alternative gospel reading, or at least in our, our sister church, is Mark 10, which is... 
uh, James and John asking to sit at his right hand and his left. Mm, yeah. And then he makes this reference, well, let them know that's to whom it's given. And I think often we certainly are looking to um, the thief, the two thieves. Yeah. Uh, but there's also just this constant theme of two people always witnessing. So yeah, just supper to Maeus. Exactly yeah. so, well, that you always have these two witnesses to it. Right. Um, which is, of course, just simply consistent with the Old Testament scriptures. Right. Yeah, yeah the account could be what it is without any servants involved. Just Abraham's right. test, and then it's Isaac, and yeah. all the parallels. And you just leave the servants out of it. But no, 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 two servants are along. Yeah, right. Which could indicate also that there's a conversation going on among the apostles uh, about who are the two witnesses. I mean, there's this, not just merely I want power, but there's there's something about wanting to be close to to the messianic work that's about to take place. Yeah. Yeah. The chief. This just is sort of a little reminiscent to me also about the um, situation in the, in the garden, the night in which our Lord was betrayed in the garden of Gethsemane. He's there with his apostles. And then he narrowed it down. And he's like, at a certain point, he's like, you, now I'm gonna, now I'm gonna go a little further. And you guys wait here. Mm. <laughs> yeah, very nice. So Hebrews, by faith Abraham, when he was tempted, when he was, excuse me, Freudian slip, when he was tested, <laughs> there you have it, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Right? So, you know, even if Abraham was not, even if, and I think Dr. Lander's kind of hinting at this before, that even if the act didn't totally go through, it was a sacrifice. And then also, you know, it's also a resurrection. Like if, yeah, like, I don't know if you've ever lost a child or something, but when you get them back, that's resurrection, right? So figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw this place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Oh, this is what I wanted to show you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You see that connection with the Old Testament there? They're, they're preaching and meditating on the Old Testament Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. They're not talking about necessarily the Gospels or epistles here or New Testament. They're talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And you have many places in the, in the Old Testament where you, where you have a reference to these, this third day. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. The father takes the, son, takes the wood for the burnt offering. And where does, he, where does it go? And Isaac, where does it go specifically? I mean, I kind of have this vision of maybe you've seen some sacred art where he's, it's a bundle of 
um, firewood and he's carrying it where? On his back, right? It's such a clear, clear picture of the gospel and the passion of our Lord. And just think, when, when Isaac is going up to Mount Moriah, he's going through the streets of what would someday come, the streets of Jerusalem, in the neighborhood of the temple and Mount Calvary. Several times in the narrative, you get this language of what's going on re- relationally. You got fire in the knife, and we could talk about that, but what's the relation between the father and the son here? They went together. Yeah, they went together. I think that's significant. Um, you know, sometimes, I don't know how you picture this, but it, when it says, you know, the boy, the lad and I are going over there and we're going to come back to you. Well, the Hebrew for, for boy and lad, don't, don't let that throw you. I don't, I don't think, Isaac's not five or six. He's a, I think he's a young man. I think he's a young man. Some of the church fathers thought that he was how many years old exactly? And you don't have to hold to this dogmatically, but. 33. 33, Why? Because that was the age of our, of our Lord. They're going together. So, I mean, that's worth thinking about. Keep in mind, you got a, you got a fellow who's well over 100 years old. You got, he's well over 100 years old. And you have Isaac in the prime of his life. So as they get there, you know, where's the lamb? They go to the place of the sacrifice. But you get this image of them going together. Now, if you think that something, like, what if Isaac smelled something fishy? He didn't like this uncomfortable situation. You think he kind of got out of there, lickety-split, if he wanted to? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, it reminds me of the hymn. um, We didn't sing today, but I think we sang it Wednesday. Yes, Father, yes, most willingly, I'll bear what you command me. Your your will, my will conforms to your decree. What's the rest? Yeah. So you, ha- you, have the, you have Isaac going with the father. I mean, we often talk about Abraham's faith, but we should also say a thing or two about Isaac, right? You have all this language in John's gospel. You know, I and the father are one. The son's will is in perfect conformity with the will of the father. They go both together. You think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, with his arrest, Peter strikes off the, the ear of, um, of the servant, of the high priest's uh, servant. And what does Jesus say? He says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. But don't you know I could have called down 12 12 legions, 12,000 angels to rescue me. So here you see Isaac anticipating our Lord going like a lamb led to the slaughter. Isaac said to his father, My father said, Here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Um, Our preacher today, he settled on that a little bit. I don't know if you caught that. He talked about how that question, where is the lamb, is kind of the central question of our life. Do you hear that? I thought that was really profound. 
just to pause there and, and think about, you know, where is the lamb? At any point in your life, you could say, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Abraham prophesies right back, God will provide for himself. Hebrew can be interested in here. God will provide for himself the lamb, not necessarily some separate, some separate offering, but, but that the, the offering, the sacrifice will be the Lord himself. You have more of this language of them going together in perfect conformity. Questions? I thought it was Dr. Veach? Uh, yeah, I mean, generally, generally speaking, I, I think that the prophets know more than what we, than what we, than what we think. I, you know, they've been preaching and teaching about the, the promise and the sacrifice to come. And I think Abraham knows and trusts that God is going to provide it. And maybe doesn't know exactly how. It doesn't, you know, I mean, we have this privilege. We look back on a couple of few thousand years of church history we got all the we got all the scriptures there but um, yeah we don't know exactly what picture he had but he, he soon sees uh, you know, lifts up his eyes and there he there he sees the ram sees Christ trust in the promise of the gospel trust in the resurrection Dr. Patterson in verse 8 he says my son does the grammar indicate that he's just addressing his son there, or he's saying, God will provide the lamb, my son? I'm guessing it's probably the first one, but... He's addressing Isaac. What's that? Yeah. Oh, right. Sure, I mean, the scriptures are like this. It's, it's not... Uh, the scriptures are so deep and profound and... It's about Isaac, but of course, who is it ultimately about? Of course, it's about Christ. Yeah, so I like that, Dr. Lynn. There's, there's two different uh, interpretive traditions, and one wants to see Abraham as a model of faith in such a way that he's, he's unflinching, unaltered by all the occurrences that are taking place, and that is actually the Calvinist interpretation yeah, yeah. of this text, in which... Uh, Abraham, because he has faith, therefore does not have emotion. Mm -hmm. uh, the Lutheran interpretation sees Abraham as completely caught within the experience yeah. and cannot see beyond what else, whatever it is that God has said. That's all he can. That's all he can see, and so he must, in fact, believe the promise despite every other thing that is in front of him and everything he's experiencing, including his his emotions, and I think there's something really helpful about this for us. If we regard Abraham as weeping yeah. in these moments, as right. Abraham as uh, terrified about what he has to do, and nevertheless doing it. 
Yeah. I mean, that's part of, I think that's part of our experience as Christians. And I, do, I don't like this idea of Abraham knows everything ahead of time, so it's not a big deal. Like, mm -hmm. Christ knows he's going to be raised on the third day. Why is he sweating blood? Right. But that's not the case. The, yeah. the experience of faith is pretty horrific. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, he trusts in the promises of God here, but yeah, Luther, yeah, he's not, he's, he doesn't like, you know, set up wooden, wooden saints, he calls them. Yeah. And yes, this is a, this is a crisis, and this is tentatio, and this is the theology, this is the definition of theology of the cross, right? Where, where God's promises are in direct contradiction to what one experiences, but he, but he's pressing through in obedience and trust in God, and that's why his name is synonymous with faith. And we, yeah, we know from studying Abraham that he is not um, without these failings there and that he's, his life is, is a mixed bag of uh, kind of this law of undulation and, and ups and downs. And well, but even, even that, I just would add, the, the horror or whatever else he experiences is not sin. Mm. Christians should also know that, that, yeah. that to be emotional or to be terrified to be terrified at death. It's not a sin to be terrified when you're about to die. Yeah. Uh, it is, it is uh, a sin to reject the promise of the resurrection. But I, I just, we, we should be able to make room for this and understand even in Abraham, you're not sinning when you are, um, when you, when, as, as you put it with Tentatsi, when you're stretched taut. Yeah, right. Yeah, 100%. And that's why, that's why we're gentle. You know, that's why we're sympathetic with Abraham, even with, uh, yeah, throughout the journey there with the wife's, with the wife, the sister thing, and just, yeah. This is Caravaggio. I mean, if there's ever an artist who's divinely inspired, I really like Caravaggio. I mean, that captures the horror, doesn't it? Not the angel, the ram. Pastor, that's a very different picture of Isaac. So on the one hand, you could say that Isaac's submitting that. Could you show the picture yeah. again? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Isaac is not exactly in pure submission here. Yeah, well, you should, I mean, we should think about the cross. This, Isaac is going, well, in obedience to his, to his father, but there's also a, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, right? Just on the point of um, who knows what and the Calvinist yeah, please. thing, the text is consistent with suppressing how much Abe knows in order to get at that point. So mm -hmm. go to the, the one I'll tell you. You don't yeah. know it, but I do. Right. right? Yeah. It sounds like his initial call. You just have to trust that the word. And same for Isaac. He knows some things for sure. Mm -hmm. Here's fire, here's night. So he confesses that to his father. But he doesn't know everything because he doesn't know where the lamb is. Right. So he asks that question. So he stays with what he knows and then yeah. asks the question. And then Abe, too, says the word sheep, but it's actually going to be a ram. There are all kinds of indications that Abe doesn't know everything that's going to go down here. Right. The same for Isaac. And the, 
parallels between this and the initial call testify that you're not, he's trusting in the words of this whole thing and everything that comes along with that, like the uncertainty of what we don't know. Right. Um, there's like this gradation of revelation. Sure. The Lord knows the whole plan. Yeah. Abe knows a lot of the plan, but not all of it. Isaac knows some of the plan, but not as much as Abraham does. Right, right. The servants know less than both of them. Right, right. 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 You know, that's the whole, that's the whole business. But to, I think the Calvinist thing is to flip that around or to mis, misconstrue that. I see. Yeah. Anyway, good. Sorry. No, that's, that's really important. Let's see. We just have a minute or two. I want to see what we want to throw on here. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Freddie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, yeah, Abraham takes off in the morning. Could have been a very practical thing, right? Probably want to get out underneath from Sarah. Yeah. And, but uh, it's also consistent with the scriptures that if you. You know, we saw it with Abimelech a couple weeks ago that when you have this command from the Lord, you, you get up and you, and you go. Get up and go. But yeah, I probably want to get away from... I don't think that conversation would have went well with Sarah. This is from our gospel today. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So, um, you know, we're appreciating this progressive, well, we have to be careful of this progressive revelation idea. That's kind of gets interesting. But um, Abraham, um, he sees the promise in uh, the ram here. You have the ram, which is a, and it's interesting because it's not, ex you know, it's a conf God will provide the lamb, but then what do we have here? Well, it's a ram. It's like, you know, it's not exactly the, the lamb. Um, it's this mature male lamb anticipating our Lord. But it, um, it is truly fulfilled when John the Baptist stands at the Jordan and beholds Christ and there's the moment. You know, God will provide the lamb, my son. That's... You, you have that fulfillment when he comes to be baptized as, as the sacrifice for, for sins. Today it's all like, like an early passion. Did you notice that? They picked up stones to throw at him. The passion's beginning. So I know we're closing, but I just want to give you one little, one little cool thing that I... Oh, Una, go ahead, Una. Yes, I, th I think he trusts his father. And that's not to, that's not to get away from the, the tear that, because um, these are flesh, these are real people, just like you and I. So there is complete and utter tear at this moment of sacrifice. But we have reason from the text, Una, to believe that Isaac trusted in his father, in the midst of the whore there. And... Um, it's a call also to us to, to trust in God our Father even 
amidst great trial and, and excruciating suffering or uh, even uncertainty um, to trust in God. So yes, I believe that Isaac trusted, trusted in his father. I believe that's revealed in the text. He is, he is willingly going like a lamb to the slaughter and it very much anticipates our Lord Jesus and trusting in his heavenly father. It says that um, Abraham came back to the young man and the donkey after, uh, uh, after being on Mount Moriah and the near sacrifice there. It doesn't make reference to Isaac coming down with his father. We have no reason to believe that he didn't come down with the father. I'm sure he did. But for me, it's very interesting that the next, you just don't have a reference to Isaac. You know the next image you have of Isaac in the Bible? He's walking across the field to meet his bride, Rebecca. I think that's nifty, right? So you have, you have crucifixion, you have resurrection, and you also have the consummation and the second coming and the marriage feast, the wedding of the lamb in his kingdom. And he takes not just any bride, but a Gentile bride for himself. I mean, what a beautiful picture of the church, right? And you have that through the, through the sacrifice. Wait here. We're coming back to you, right? And the next thing, next thing you know, you got Isaac walking across this field to be married to his bride, Rebecca. You guys tracking? It's pretty cool. Let's, um, I'll leave you with a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you and lead you to everlasting life. Depart in peace. Say, I thought it'd be a, a really a nice gift and a treat for you to have Dr. Lane teach you next Sunday. You know, because we had a look at uh, the sacrifice today, Dr. Lane will be teaching on the Lutheran doctrine of the atonement next Sunday and maybe bringing in something from the confessions and illuminating some of what we talked about today. So thanks, Dr. Lane.